Welcome to Saturday Evening Torah Class, an in-depth, interdisciplinary study of the Hebrew Scriptures. Tonight's lesson is week number 33, Leviticus chapter 23. You know, Baruch Levine aptly names Leviticus 23 that we're going to study tonight, the calendar of sacred time. So, we, we're going to get a detailed schedule of religious events as ordained by Yehovah and given to the people of Israel in this chapter. Now, these religious events are most recognizable to us as the seven biblical feasts. And this, of course, is not the first time we've been introduced to them, nor the last time that we'll get more detailed information about how and when and why they are to be observed. Now, Hebrew scholars will tell you that there are three primary sections of Torah where the religious event calendar is presented. The first of them being in Exodus chapters 21 through 23. Now, this section has come to be known among the Hebrews as the Book of the Covenant. The Book of the Covenant consists of those rules and ordinances immediately following the giving of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20. Now, recall that the Ten Commandments were essentially the first ten of what would grow to 613 laws in the Torah. However, these first ten laws also kind of double as the ten basic principles from which the remaining 603 laws and all future commands of God would be founded. It is so important to understand that there is no law given that does not conform to the pattern and principles of the Ten Commandments. And permit me to wonder out loud why the same church that has long ago determined that the Torah is an obsolete document and says that to follow the laws and principles of a Torah amounts to that dreaded legalism would then turn around and venerate or actually demand that the first ten of those laws, the Ten Commandments, be scrupulously observed. It doesn't make any sense. After the book of the covenant, Exodus 21 through 23, the next section of Torah that adds to the religious event calendar is what we're about to read in Leviticus 23 that is then also going to be coupled with Numbers 28 and 29 the third section, third place in the, in the Torah where these feasts are talked about, will be in Deuteronomy. Now, why three separate sections of Torah on and about the religious event calendar? Are they but repetitions of one another? Do they conflict, maybe, with one another? No. All of these sections, each of them give us a different aspect of the religious event calendar whose primary focus are those seven biblical feasts. Now, it's long been popular for those who oppose literal Bible interpretation and those who oppose God in general to point out that there are differences and discrepancies among Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. 
And for me to say that those differences don't exist would be dishonest. In response to this challenging of Scripture, it has long been taught to the church that these differences among the four Gospels are not a matter of conflict or error, rather they are but the same events told through the eyes of four different men. Some were eyewitnesses, others gathered their information from eyewitnesses and then wrote it down. Now, as we all recognize in our own personal life experiences, when several people view the same event or incident or hear the same speech or sermon, each person comes away with a slightly different perception of what it is they saw or heard. And I can tell you with authority that that's the case, because after every teaching, I am amazed at the variety of what it is that I supposedly said. Among the four gospel accounts, it should not be at all surprising then that each writer sees Yeshua and the acts of his ministry a little bit differently. If that wasn't the case, common sense would tell us we ought to suspect some not entirely honest editing took place to make everything appear perfectly consistent. The differences that arise are in some cases a matter of weight and emphasis. And in other cases, it's simply a matter of the writer choosing which events to record and which to leave out. It was just a matter of what seemed important to that hearer versus what seemed ordinary and already common knowledge. And just like hearing testimony at a trial from a number of witnesses, a more complete picture is usually pieced together than just hearing from one. Yet at the same time, we'll often get information that confuses the situation. I call that phenomenon walking around the rock. If each of us approaches a large boulder, and each of us is instructed to stand at a different point around that boulder, and then we're asked to describe what we see directly in front of us, every description is going to vary somewhat because the boulder is not uniform in shape. It's different from every angle. It looks a little different depending on the exact spot you're standing, but it's the same boulder. It's the same with the Gospels. It's the same with the three sections of Torah concerning the Hebrew calendar of religious events. Each of these three sections gives us a little different emphasis, a little different weight, a little different perspective. That when we take it as a composite, we get a much more complete picture of what God expected from his people in this regard. Now, because we are in Leviticus, which is the priestly section of Torah, which is all the more reason, frankly, for believers to pay attention. So there will be a little more attention paid to the required rituals and all the associated sacrifices that go along with the biblical feasts. Now, we're going to read all of Leviticus 23, a rather long chapter. 
And then as we move along, we'll reread pertinent sections. Now let me warn you in advance that we're going to look in depth at some of the details associated with these various festivals because they play such a central role in the life and ministry of Messiah. We're also going to take a closer look because these passages have been so misunderstood by Christians for centuries that we have come away with some pretty odd and very misguided church traditions and doctrines as a result of those misunderstandings. So, open your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 23. If you've got the complete Jewish Bible, it's page 136. And we're going to read Leviticus chapter 23. Adonai said to Moshe, Tell the people of Israel, the designated times of Adonai, which you are to proclaim as holy convocations, are my designated times. Works to be done on six days, but the seventh day is a Shabbat of complete rest, a holy convocation. You're not to do any kind of work. It's a Sabbath for Adonai, even in your homes. These are the designated times of Adonai, the holy convocations you're to proclaim at their designated times. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, between sundown and complete darkness comes Passover for Adonai. On the fifteenth day of the same month is the festival of matzah, unleavened bread. For seven days you are to eat matzah. On the first day you are to have a holy convocation. Don't do any kind of ordinary work. Bring an offering made by fire to Adonai for seven days. And on the seventh day is a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. Adonai said to Moshe, tell the people of Israel, after you enter the land I am giving you and harvest its ripe crops, you are to bring a sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the Kohen, to the priest. He's to wave that sheaf before Adonai so that you will be accepted. The priest is to wave it on the day after the Shabbat. Now, on the day that you wave that sheep, you are to offer a male lamb without defect in its first year as a burnt offering for Adonai. Its grain offering is to be one gallon of fine flour mixed with olive oil, an offering made by fire to Adonai as a fragrant aroma. Its drink offering is to be of wine, one quart. You're not to eat bread, dried grain or fresh grain until the day you bring the offering for your God. This is a permanent regulation throughout all your generations, no matter where you live. From the day after the day of rest, that is, from the day you bring that sheaf for waving, you're to count seven full weeks until the day after the seventh week. You're to count 50 days then you're to present a new grain offering to Adonai. You must bring bread from your homes for waving. Two loaves made with one gallon of fine flour baked with leaven as first fruits for Adonai. Along with the bread present seven lambs without defect, one year old, one young bull, and two rams. These will be a burnt offering for Adonai with their grain and drink offerings, an offering made by fire as a fragrant aroma for Adonai. Offer one male goat as a sin offering, two male lambs, one year old as a sacrifice of peace offerings. 
The Kohen will wave them with the bread of the first fruits as a wave offering before Adonai with the two lambs. These will be holy for Adonai for the priests. On the same day, you are to call a holy convocation. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. This is a permanent regulation throughout all your generations, no matter where you live. When you harvest the ripe crops produced in your land, don't harvest all the way to the corners of the field. And don't gather the ears of grain left by the harvesters. Leave them for the poor and the foreigner. I'm Adonai, your God. Adonai said to Moses, tell the people of Israel in the seventh month, the first of the month is to be for you a complete day for remembering a holy combination with blasts on the shofar. Do not do any kind of ordinary work and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. Adonai said to Moses, the tenth day of the seventh month is Yom Kippur. You're to have a holy convocation. You're to deny yourselves. You're to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. You're not to do any kind of work on that day because it is Yom Kippur. To make atonement for you before Adonai your God. Anyone who does not deny himself on that day is to be cut off from his people. And anyone who does any kind of work on that day, I will destroy from among his people. You're not to do any kind of work. It's a permanent regulation throughout all your generations, no matter where you live. It will be for you a Sabbath of complete rest, and you're to deny yourselves. You are to rest on your Sabbath from evening to the ninth day of the month until the following evening. Now, Adonai said to Moses, tell the people of Israel, on the fifteenth day of the seventh month is, a, is the feast of Sukkot. For seven days to Adonai. On the first day is to be a holy convocation. Don't do any kind of ordinary work. For seven days you're to bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. On the eighth day you're to have a holy convocation and bring an offering made by fire to Adonai. It's a day of public assembly. Do not do any kind of ordinary work. These are the designated times of Adonai that you are to proclaim as holy convocations. And bring an offering made by fire to Adonai, a burnt offering, a grain offering, a sacrifice and drink offerings, each on its own day. Besides the Sabbaths of Adonai, your gifts, all your vows, all your voluntary offerings that you give to Adonai. But on the fifteenth day of the seventh month, when you've gathered the produce of your land, you are to observe the festival of Adonai seven days. The first day is to be a complete rest. The eighth day is to be a complete rest. On the first day, you're to take choice fruit, palm fronds, thick branches, river willows, and celebrate in the presence of Adonai your God for seven days. You're to observe it as a feast to Adonai seven days in the year. It is a permanent regulation, generation after generation. Keep it in the seventh month. You're to live... In Sukkot, for seven days, every citizen of Israel is to live in a sukkah. So that generation after generation of you will know that I made the people about Israel live in Sukkot when I brought them out of the land of Egypt because I'm Adonai your God. Then Moses announced to the people of Israel these designated times of Adonai.
we get the typical beginning to a passage of Leviticus where it's stated that God is speaking to Moses and telling Moses what he's then to turn around and relate to the people of Israel. So while these passages are presented to us from a, a priestly point of view, they're still directed to the nation of Israel as a whole, not to just the priests. Now, Jehovah tells Moses that what follows is about something he calls fixed or appointed times or designated times. These are all sacred occasions. And the Hebrew word translated as fixed or appointed is moed. M-O-E-D. Moed. And fixed times or appointed times, designated times, these are all good and accurate translations of moed. Now these times are much more than fixed. They're sacred and that's the key. They are sacred to God and they are therefore to be considered sacred to the people of Israel. Let's remember that sacred simply means something's been set apart as special. And while we won't go there for now because I also want you to fully take in and ponder that God's sacred times are special because they are holy and that the sections of the New Testament which seem, and I underline seem, to indicate that suddenly all of God's sacred times are turned on their heads and Paul now seems to be saying that they're negative and they're called elemental spirits and worthless, just don't pass the smell test. This is a terrible translation. It's been taken out of context. And this is the result of a very anti-Jewish agenda that's held the church hostage for 1900 years. It's one thing to acknowledge and recognize the fulfillment of the prophesied transformation of the sacrificial system from employing the blood of bulls and goats every day to atone for Israel's sins into a once-for-all sacrifice of Yeshua's perfect blood for atonement. But it's quite another leap for Yehovah to carefully lay out all of these fixed times of holy observances in Holy Scripture, declare them good and mandatory, And how long did it say, at least in five places in this chapter, they were to last? Throughout all generations. And then, supposedly, turn around with the advent of Yeshua and not only cancel them, but declare that they've always been worthless. And that they simply came from man's debased mind. And and although that exact theology is taught consistently in our Era, it comes from a sad and sometimes purposeful misunderstanding and mistranslation of those New Testament passages and an even more dreadful ignorance of the Torah. These sacred observances were not overturned by Jehovah. In fact, almost every story we have of Jesus going to Jerusalem was for the purpose of his observing one of these festivals. Practically, well, virtually everyone. And that's not conjecture. They're named. They're named in the New Testament. I mean, are we to assume that Yeshua was observing Levitical rites at the same time they were being deemed evil by the Father who instituted them? 
or conversely, that his message to his current and future disciples was, do as I say, but not as I do. No. The first fixed time, designated time, moed, that Yehovah deals with is the Sabbath. And yet there is a differentiation made between the Sabbath and fixed times. Rightly so. For as I have taught you in prior lessons, unlike what some think, the Shabbat, the Sabbath, was not first instituted as one of the Ten Commandments given to Moses on Mount Sinai. The Sabbath was established way back in Genesis 2 at the time of creation. Genesis 2.1 says, Thus the heavens and the earth were completed, and all their hosts. And on the seventh day, God completed his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work which he had done, and God blessed the seventh day, and he sanctified it, set it apart, special, because in it he rested from all his work which God had created and made. There was the Sabbath. Now, rather than inventing the Sabbath at Mount Sinai, God simply reinforced the duty of Israel to observe it. An observance that had obviously, long ago, been forgotten by mankind. Exodus 28. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Shabbat, a Sabbath, of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant, or your cattle... Or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days, the Lord made the heavens and the earth. There's that connection. The sea and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. The key word here is remember. In Hebrew, kazar. And it means to recall. It means to bring something back. Okay. The sense of it is to bring something back that used to be. Okay. The Shabbat observance was not originated between God and Israel. It was established between God and all mankind in general at the end of creation, which is why in Exodus 20, verse 8, it makes the connection. The Hebrew word for Sabbath is Shabbat, which of course is quite different from Moed, which means fixed time. So what the term Shabbat amounts to is different from what goes on during a moed, a fixed time, a designated time. This is going to become clearer as we move through today's lesson. Now we're going to look at this from a little different angle than what we normally have because we find that there are a number of kinds of Sabbaths, Shabbats, and each of them have a different meaning and they have a different place in the religious the Hebrew religious events calendar. Now, verse 3 speaks of the kind of Sabbath that we're all familiar with. The seventh-day Sabbath, formally called, or at least in Hebrew, called Shabbat. And, and this type of Sabbath contains three elements that separate it from all other days of the week, days 1 through 6, as well as from other fixed times that have been assigned some Sabbath-like requirements. The seventh day Shabbat first prohibits work. In Hebrew, Melchah. 
Second, it is a sacred day is to be treated as such. And third, it must be observed by all Israelites, no matter where they are on this planet. But verse 3 puts a little finer point on what work, Melchah, amounts to. It says the seventh day Shabbat is to result in a complete rest, a complete cessation. In Hebrew, the words used in this verse are Shabbat Shabbaton. The best English translation, I think, that explains the sense of this two-word construction is probably the most restful cessation from assigned tasks. In other words, of all the holy observances, the balance of which almost all result from observing the biblical feasts, by the way, whereby some of those holy feast days require resting from daily tasks, the seventh day Shabbat is to be the one whereby the cessation of work is to be the most extreme. It's the one where absolutely no work is to be done. To what extent this is to be taken is shown to us in Exodus as regards the gathering of manna. A double portion of it was to be gathered on the sixth day of the week so that it didn't have to be gathered on the seventh, the Shabbat. There's even a case in Numbers whereby God ordered a man executed for simply gathering sticks presumably for a fire, on the Sabbath. Let me reiterate, we're talking about the seventh day Sabbath, the one that comes at the last day of every week, each and every week, the Sabbath that was instituted as the final act of creation. Yet, there were other Sabbaths than just the seventh day Sabbath. For instance, as concerns the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the Feast of Matzah, the first day of that feast is a Shabbat, as is the last day of that same feast. Now, others of the various feasts also have special Sabbath days associated with them. There are also Sabbath years that we're going to read about, meaning every seventh year. But there is a distinction made in the Hebrew between the Sabbath and a Sabbath. The Sabbath is referring only to the seventh day Sabbath. A Sabbath is any other ordained day of rest. Now here's the thing. Sabbath literally means rest or cessation. If we were to call the seventh day of the week an English word that properly corresponds to Shabbat, it would be rest. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, rather Sunday, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, rest. Rest day. So anytime God orders a sacred time when one's regular duties were to be put aside in the Bible, it's called a Sabbath. Now, the seventh day Sabbath is above all these other days. In fact, the name for the seventh day of the week is Shabbat in the Bible. All the other days of the week 
referred to in the Bible are simply referred to by number. First day, second day, third day, fourth day, fifth day, sixth day, Shabbat. Now, one of the main reasons a Sabbath was declared on the first day of a biblical feast was so that there was time to make preparations. Therefore, a Sabbath, or better, a Shabbaton, did not require that all work cease. Women could prepare food. Men could gather wood for fires and so on. Regular work, regular work, like trade crafts, like if a man was a carpenter, that was to cease. Okay. But he could do other things that were primarily associated with preparing for a particular biblical feast. So the seventh day Sabbath was for man's physical and spiritual rest so that he could regenerate. But it was also to mimic God's cessation from doing anything that creates. The other so-called Sabbaths were generally so Hebrew folks could prepare for their associated biblical feast. Now one other little thing and we'll move on. The words, it shall be a Sabbath to the Lord, at the end of verse 3, are very important. The Hebrew grammar used here uses the possessive form of the word. Therefore, it makes the Sabbath as a possession of the Lord. The Sabbath belongs to God. It's His. That makes the Sabbath day holy property. And we have discussed in prior lessons the terrible results for one who would dare to trespass against God's holy property. The Old Testament Hebrews fully understood that the Sabbath belonged to God as did the Hebrews of Yeshua's day. So compare Leviticus 23.3 to Jesus' comments in Luke 6. He says to them, the Son of Man is the Lord of the Sabbath. What an amazing attachment he made. Now, of course, Son of Man was one of several favorite ways Jesus used when referring to himself. And here, for those who might say Jesus never said he was God, is a place where all those Jews around him knew full well what he was saying. That he, Yeshua, was the possessor, the owner, the Lord of the Sabbath. The Sabbath was Christ's holy property. It was his domain. <laughs> he couldn't have said that he was God in a more forceful way among a Jewish society than he did right here. So, Sabbath can refer to the recurring seventh day of the week, or it can refer to a special day whereby some work is set aside at the beginning of a feast, or it can refer to that seventh year, whereby the fields aren't to be tilled or planted, and Sabbath can generally refer to any God-established and sanctified cycle consisting of sevens. Seven days, seven weeks, seven years, seven years of years, the Jubilee. Seven weeks of weeks. Shavuot, Pentecost, and so on. Knowing the Hebrew words helps us because usually in Hebrew the word Shabbaton 
is used to refer to the days of rest that are associated with the feasts, while Shabbat is used to refer to that unique, once-per-week, seventh day of rest. Okay, let's reread just a couple of verses here to get our bearings. Open your Bibles back up to Leviticus 23. We're going to read four verses. Uh, five, I guess. Verses four through eight. Leviticus 23, 4 through 8. These are the designated times of Adonai, the holy convocations, you're to proclaim at their designated times. In the first month on the 14th day of the month, between sundown and complete darkness comes Pesach, Passover, for Adonai. On the 15th day of the same month is the festival of Matzah, unleavened bread. For seven days you're to eat Matzah. On the first day you're to have a holy convocation. Don't do any kind of ordinary work. Bring an offering made by fire to Adonai for seven days, and on the seventh day is a holy convocation. Don't do any kind of ordinary work. Okay. Now, without doubt, as most of you are beginning to see in your own lives, the biblical festivals interrupt the daily and weekly flows of the Hebrews' everyday life so that they didn't come without some inconvenience. The purpose of those festivals were as reminders. Reminders of God's overarching, immutable preeminence. Without doubt, the people of Israel had no idea of the prophetic nature of each of these biblical feasts, these fixed times. We believers of today can see it, but they did it. They observed them simply out of obedience to the law. Okay. Certainly some of these holy days were great fun for the children as it broke the monotony of life. But in many cases it was a lot of work for the adults. And in three of these festivals, three of the seven, it was required that they had to be celebrated at the temple. Therefore, if one lived in or near Jerusalem, that was one thing. But if one lived far to the south or far to the north from Jerusalem, that was quite another. Preparation would need to begin sooner. Journeys of several days would have to be undertaken to arrive in time for that appointed day. There was a certain amount of danger in every journey. And the cost of travel was great. In verse 5, we begin to get the dates now and requirements for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, also called the Feast of Matzah, or just Matzah. Now, what can get confusing, and I need you to clear your heads and follow me closely, what can get confusing is that depending on how one chooses to look at it, Passover is essentially part of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Unleavened Bread is part of the Feast of Passover. Okay. The two feasts, though named separately, are intricately connected. The Passover sacrifice is to be offered on the evening of the 14th of Nisan. Nisan roughly corresponds to our March-April Time frame, meaning that this is a spring feast. However, Nisan is also 
What month of the year for the Hebrews? What's the number of the month? Which is it? It's the first month. It's the first month of the year for the Hebrews. Or better, it's the first month of the religious event calendar that the Hebrews use. Now, I'm not going to get into calendar issues any more than I have to. But just know that there were two main types of calendars that the Hebrews used, plus a couple more minor ones, by the way. Um, and those two main ones were the civil calendar and the religious event calendar. Now, don't get all confused by this. It's really no different than our concept of a fiscal calendar year versus a civil calendar year. It's the same idea. That is, in our modern civil calendar year, we have a 365-day year, and the first month of our civil calendar is January 1st. But for you folks who are in business, when it comes to accounting practices for tax purposes, you can make your fiscal calendar year begin any time you like. I mean, you can start the year in any month you see fit, February, March, August, December, it doesn't matter. Now, there's still 365 days, 52 weeks, 12 months, so on, for either the solar calendar or the fiscal calendar. It's just a matter of deciding on the starting point for each calendar. The Hebrew religious calendar makes Nisan its first month. The Hebrew civil calendar makes Tishri its first month. Each calendar still has the same number of days, months, and weeks. Jewish New Year is a civil calendar event, not a religious calendar event, so it occurs on the first day of Tishri. That's right, Jewish New Year is in what we would call the fall. Since Nisan, rather Nisan, Nisan, all right, is, is in the first month of the religious calendar, then the first festival, the first biblical festival of the yearly cycle occurs in Nisan. Now, just to confuse you a little more, okay, it's only by redaction, that is, editing from later times, that we even have some Bibles using the names of the months for reference here in Leviticus, or anywhere in the Torah for that matter. During this era, the months didn't have names. At least they weren't named by the Hebrews. Rather, they were just numbered like weeks were. One, two, three, four, up to twelve. In fact, it wasn't until the Jews exiled to Babylon that the Hebrews actually gave names to the months of the year, and naturally, at first, they simply adopted the Babylonian names for the months. A few years after the return to Judah, the Jews kind of Hebrewized the Babylonian month names, but they're still very recognizable from their Babylonian originals. The point is that the most correct and literal renderings of the Torah will simply call Nisan, the first month, and called Tishri, the seventh month. 
So by biblical definition, New Year's Day falls on the first day of the seventh month. I mean, is it any wonder that people's eyes roll back in their heads when they're trying to figure out exactly when some event occurred back in the early biblical days? Anyway, on Nisan 14, in the evening, before it was completely dark, the Passover lamb is to be slaughtered. Someone has pointed out something about the way I did this calendar that can be confusing. If everything I haven't told you already is already confusing. Because the way our calendars typically work. Please note, this looks like the 14th must be the end of a week. You know, I mean, our calendars are always laid out like this. That's not the case. All right? This is just some way of laying it out. This doesn't mean that the 14th was the end of a week. All right? It's just the 14th, because it's a day of a month, could fall on any weekday. All right? So don't let, don't let that confuse you. <clears throat> yeah, right. Too late. Now, also remember, add a little more stuff to the game, that a Hebrew day starts when? Sundown. That's right. Not in the morning. Then it's understandable that if a lamb was to be slaughtered, as instructed on Nisan 14, it had to be done before Night fell on this day, or what happened? The day changed. Sun goes down. Oh, it's the 15th. And none of this need be guessed at, because in verse 5, where in English it says, on the 14th day at twilight, the Hebrew words for at twilight are bain ha'abarim. And these words, while not precise in their meaning, definitely indicates that the time is somewhere between midday, noon, but before it gets dark. So technically, Passover, Pesach, is but a one-day event celebrated in in the afternoon and evening. A one-day biblical feast on the 14th of Nisan, first the first month of the religious calendar. And it was used to commemorate that awful and wonderful evening in Egypt when the Lord smote the Egyptians by killing all firstborn of Egypt, including people and livestock. The Hebrews were told to slaughter a lamb, paint its blood on the doorposts of their homes. And when the Lord saw that blood, he'd pass by and not kill the firstborn living in that home. Of course, the next morning, Pharaoh released Israel from his grip, and they began their exodus. Now, in case it hasn't occurred to you yet, as I mentioned, the 14th Passover is not connected to a day of the week. In other words, the 14th of Nisan is going to change from year to year as to exactly which of the seven days of the week it falls on. That's part of the problem with trying to determine the exact chronology of Jesus' crucifixion. Because all the biblical timing we're given is based on Passover and then the Feast of Unleavened Bread. 
And once again, the dates of these feasts are based on the day of the month, not the day of the week. Example. Christmas is always on December 25th. A specific day of the month. It doesn't matter what day of the week it falls on. Monday, Wednesday, Saturday, whatever. It has to be December 25th. Easter, on the other hand, moves around a little bit. Because it's based on being the first Sunday after Passover or after a new moon, depending on one's viewpoint. So regardless of the day of the month, it's always held on a certain day of the week. Sunday. The day following Pesach, Passover, is the first day of another biblical feast. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, or Matzah. The first day of unleavened bread is always Nisan 15. Now in verse 6, where the words the Feast of Unleavened Bread are written, an important word is typically left out of all English translations. And that word is pilgrimage. Literally, verse 6 says, the pilgrimage feast of unleavened bread. The Hebrew word that is typically just dropped and not translated is hag, pilgrimage. H-A-G or C-H-A-G. This is important because of the three biblical feasts, because rather uh, three of the biblical feasts are made distinct from all the others with this designation that they're a pilgrimage. This means that any festival that is a Chag cannot be celebrated at one's home, at least not by the adult males. Rather, it's required for one to be present at the temple in Jerusalem on the appointed day of this feast. Technically, Passover, follow me, Passover is not a pilgrimage festival. It's unleavened bread that's the pilgrimage festival. Yet because Passover is like the kickoff for the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the two are treated like one big festival for purposes of pilgrimage. So that, though not technically correct, sometimes the three pilgrimage festivals are called Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot. More correctly, the three pilgrimage festivals are Matzah, Shavuot, and Sukkot. Further, the day after Passover, the 15th of the month, 15th day of the first month, 15th day of Nisan, is a Sabbath. Not the Sabbath, a Sabbath, as we discussed earlier. It's to be a day not of complete rest, but a day of ceasing from normal work. So that special work of preparation for the Feast of Unleavened Bread can be performed. A few minutes ago, I told you that there were three requirements for the Sabbath. The Sabbath, the seventh day. Absolute and complete rest from any type of work whatsoever. That the day was holy and the day had to be observed by all Israel wherever they were. Well, the kind of Sabbath that's called for in Nisan 15 
only met two of those three criteria. It was not to be a day of complete rest. But it was to be holy, it was to be observed wherever a Jew might live. Further, even though Hebrews call this day a Sabbath, the Bible only calls it a sacred occasion on work which work is not to be done. The word Sabbath never appears in those passages. Yet by biblical definition, a sacred occasion on which some degree of cessation from work occurs is a Sabbath. So the Hebrews aren't wrong injecting the word Sabbath where it doesn't exist. And it was common knowledge over the years which was which. But it sure can confuse the daylights out of us poor Gentiles. Beginning on the first day of Matzah and continuing for seven days, no unleavened bread can be eaten by a Hebrew. In fact, no leavening Nothing that causes fermentation can even be present in one's house. Yet we'll find that it's actually eight days that no leaven is eaten because on the Passover, the day before the beginning of the Feast of Matzah, no leaven is to be present or eaten either. So there's actually an eight-day stretch of a prohibition on eating leavening or even having it present in your home. Now, let me back up one second to make something clearer. Passover was not a pilgrimage feast, but the Feast of Unleavened Bread was. Although in reading the Bible, especially the New Testament, it might appear that people had to bring their Passover lambs to the temple for slaughtering, that was not the case at all. Passover was meant to be held as it was in Egypt. Something celebrated in the home as a family ritual. Yet because of the required pilgrimage journey for the Feast of Matzah that comes the day after, the journey actually had to begin even before Passover day arrived in order to arrive in Jerusalem in time. So much of the Hebrew population wound up having Passover in Jerusalem and and necessarily had their lambs slaughtered there by default. However, it was not a biblical requirement that they either be in Jerusalem on Passover or that their lambs be slaughtered at the temple. Of course, the most pious Jews naturally preferred to have their lambs slaughtered by a priest at the temple and then cooked over one of the hundreds of public ovens located all around Jerusalem. Just as the most pious Christians prefer to have weddings, funerals, or even just prayer occur inside a church building. Somehow it just feels more religious. Okay. The final day, the seventh day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was also declared a sacred occasion in which normal work was not to be performed. This kind of Sabbath was just like the first day of the uh, of the feast. It was not that no work could done, could be done; it's just that regular work couldn't be done. And just so there's no confusion, even though this Sabbath was on the seventh and final day of matzah, it wasn't necessarily the seventh day of the week. Only every few years did the seventh day 
Sabbath occur with the last day or the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So due to the way days are counted and due to the order of the feast days, in five out of seven years, the Feast of Moxa actually had four Sabbaths embedded in it. The Sabbath of the first day of the feast, which is sometimes called Preparation Day. Then as we'll see later, another Sabbath. Haven't got to it yet, but we will for first fruits. And then sometime during the next several days, there was a standard weekly seventh day Sabbath. I mean, we had an eight day stretch in here, so it had to occur on one of those days. And then finally, the last day of Matzah, there was also this other Sabbath. Other years, one of the Sabbaths would fall on the seventh day Sabbath, so there were only three Sabbath days. Now, the oral traditions that spell out in tiniest detail every aspect of Pesah and unleavened bread are very long and tedious. And these are to be found primarily in the Mishnah tractate uh, Pesahim, if you'd like to go read it. It's really pretty fascinating. Now, we're not going to go there, or we'd be there two to three weeks just looking at those rituals and regulations. Rather, I'd like to spend a little time on something of more significance in my mind. What was the prophetic meaning to the Passover and unleavened breads? In other words, what does all this mean to us? And what should it have meant to the Hebrews? Now, I mentioned earlier that most of the central stories about Jesus took place under the backdrop or one of one or another of these biblical festivals of Leviticus. But of course, they were all pilgrimage biblical festivals. So the Bible had Yeshua going to Jerusalem to participate in these various scriptural holy days as every good and dedicated Jew would do. I also need to point out something that I'm surprised is necessary to point out, but from talking to many folks, I'm afraid it's needed. The great events in Yeshua's life that we Christians generally celebrate did not have new Christian holy days invented in order to memorialize them. Rather, these great events of Jesus' life occurred on long-established Hebrew holy days dating from the time of Moses. The holiday called Passover was not ordained as a result of Christ's crucifixion. Passover had been celebrated for over 13 centuries before Christ was born. Rather, it was that Christ was executed on that appointed day. Pentecost was not a new holiday created for that awesome moment when the Holy Spirit descended upon men, Pentecost, called Shavuot in Hebrew, was established in the law on Mount Sinai. The Holy Spirit merely came on that long-established appointed day. So what we're going to find is that each of the seven biblical feasts is but a prophetic example of our reality of duality pattern. That is that each of these biblical feasts had this physical component 
the sacrifices and the ceremonies and the feasting or fasting, each commemorated a real event, such as leaving Egypt or bringing in the harvest. Yet every one of those feasts also have a parallel spiritual component, a higher meaning that was not revealed to the Israelites until the coming of Yeshua and even later. Now, Passover commemorated an event that actually happened. The Israelites actually did slaughter a lamb, place its blood on the doorposts of their homes in Egypt, and that blood actually did protect them from death that flowed unstoppable and without mercy into every corner of Egypt. This was a historic happening. It's well recorded. And Egypt is still bitter about it, by the way, to this day. Yet Pesach also looked forward, prophetically, spiritually, to a day when the Lamb that God would provide would come and paint his own blood on the doorposts of each person's dwelling, each person's body, so that the eternal death that awaits every human ever born would pass over those who trust Jehovah's Lamb. That Lamb was and remains Jesus Christ. On Pesah Day, Nisan 14, about 30 A.D., the highest meaning of Passover happened. Yeshua HaMashiach, the Passover Lamb, once and for all, was slaughtered. But of course he died on Passover. Because that pattern had been established 13 centuries earlier in Egypt. No one was forced to paint the blood of the Lamb on his doorposts in Egypt. No one is forced to accept the Messiah's blood today. It's personal choice. Those firstborn who chose wisely in Egypt, Egyptian or Hebrew, by the way, lived. Those who did not, died. Those who accepted the protective power of Yeshua's blood today will live forever spiritually. Those who reject that precious offer will be destroyed physically and spiritually. These aren't my rules. These are God's. The Passover is one feast that has already been both physically and spiritually fulfilled. So it's not something we look forward towards. Rather, we look back in in, in commemoration of it. Passover is a day of remembrance. It's a finished work. Now, the Feast of Unleavened Bread is all about sin and the resultant decay. Leavening, yeast, anything that causes fermentation was to be absent from every Israelite's home and from any food that they might eat. Fermentation is a process of decay. The fermentation that causes bread to rise and grapes to break down into alcohol is a means of facilitating decay. Leaven is that agent that's added to food that brings on an accelerated rate of decay. The fermentation. And the Bible makes a direct parallel 
symbolically, between leavening and sin. Sin is the agent in man and in the world that results in death and decay. The more leavening that is added, the faster and more violent the fermentation process. The more sin that is in us, the faster and more violent is our decay, physically and spiritually. The Feast of Unleavened Bread, Matzah, was, as was Passover, a remembrance of Israel leaving Egypt. Israel had to hurry. They had to hurry to leave because they had no time, and they had no time to prepare bread in the regular and the preferred way by giving it time to rise and then baking it, just like we all prefer it. Therefore, they made bread without leaven. Bread like the Bedouins make to this day. They made it without yeast and ate that unleavened bread for the first several days after their departure from the land of Goshen. The leaven, the sin, was left behind in Egypt. No decay, no sin was to accompany Israel into their new life into the new land that they've been given. The Torah uses an interesting word to describe what Yehovah actually did when he saved Israel from Egypt and then took them away from their bondage. Redemption. They were redeemed. Redeemed means a price had to be paid for their freedom, and boy it was. Thousands upon thousands of Egyptians, and undoubtedly a lot of Israelites, as well as hundreds of thousands of innocent livestock, died in order that Israel was redeemed. Notice the order of things. First, Israel had to accept the atoning blood of the Passover lamb. Then the sin, the leaven, was removed from their life. Now they were redeemed. It's the same for us. All of this was an act of grace by God Almighty. Yeshua died and went to the grave, but because he was the ultimate unleavened bread, he had no sin in him, so his body did not decay. Remember, decay is the result of leavening. Jesus is the bread of life, we're told. Actually, it says he's the matzah of life. He is the unleavened, sinless, never decaying bread of life. He went to the cross and died. That's Passover. Then he went into the tomb. He didn't decay. He entered into new life. That's unleavened bread. Just as Yeshua died on Passover day, naturally he entered the tomb on the first day, the Feast of Matzah. The events that occurred in Egypt the hurried cooking of unleavened bread, the rush to leave. These are just historic, well-recorded things. They happened. These things happened on a physical level. On a spiritual level, when Jesus was placed in that tomb and his sinless body refused to decay, and then he arose, the feast of unleavened bread was fulfilled. And we, in union with him, 
after we have accepted his Passover blood, we have the sin, that leaven, removed from our lives as we enter a new life with him. Our bodies will decay because they are born of leaven, of sin. But our spirits won't decay because the leaven, the sin, has been removed from that aspect of our being, of our essence. Rather, our renewed spirits are now going to go on to a new and eternal life with our Lord. The feast of matzah, the feast of unleavened bread, is a remembrance. It is finished, both physically and spiritually. And we'll move on to some other feasts next week.